This is Paul Kay, and you're listening to the Wake Island Podcast. Today on the show, we have documentarian Aaron Bruckner. His film, Uncle Howard, is an intertwining tale of past and present. The movie is about filmmaker Howard Bruckner and his nephew Aaron's personal journey to discovering his uncle's work and the legacy of a life cut short by the AIDS epidemic. In 1983, Howard Bruckner directed the documentary Burroughs, the movie, as well as a feature film, The Bloodhounds of Broadway, which starred Madonna and Matt Dillon. At the time, nascent filmmaker Jim Jarmusch was a sound recorder on Burroughs and is currently the executive producer of Uncle Howard. 23 years after Howard's death, his nephew Aaron ventures down a rabbit hole to unearth his uncle's archives from a New York City bunker that was once home to William Burroughs. The bunker is a nearly mythical location a museum trapped in time, a place rarely seen by outsiders. The first time I saw Uncle Howard, I not only fell in love with the narrative, but also its aesthetic. Stunning archival footage and candid video diaries present us with a snapshot of a long gone New York City, along with a generation of artists. Uncle Howard not only blew me away, but moved me to tears. As a teenager, the specter of AIDS loomed over my childhood. I also had family who died from the disease, which in retrospect tainted how I internalized love, sex, and relationships. During the conversation, I realized how much I haven't processed in regards to the losses in my own life. But after witnessing Aaron's devotion to Howard and his clear-headedness as a filmmaker, it made me feel a little bit less weird about all of it. And I think that's the best thing a work of art can do. Aaron was beyond gracious with his time and insight. It was a surreal experience to hear about what it was like for him to walk into the bunker for the first time and tell Howard's story through the collection of media his uncle had left behind. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Earlier, earlier ages. And um, so there were like these vivid memories and then it was kind of interesting to see new ones when I was started the process of making the film, right? Like, so like some, like in the beginning of the movie when I'm videotaping Howard, you know, I did not remember that. I remembered that day, basically, I kind of remember the Turkish restaurant that, you know, the family went to later that night to celebrate my grandparents' anniversary and being there with Howard. But I remember turning the videotape on him and like seeing that scene. So it was kind of crazy how like, you know, the memory then becomes enhanced. I mean, now, like, I couldn't separate the full memory of what I had actually remembered and what I had seen reinforced or newly created from this big memory. So I know, I don't know if that sounds super weird or confusing, but in a, in a funny way, it makes it very hard for me to um, just isolate a particular memory. Right? No, that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm curious to get into this conversation because... <laughs> You're the first peer I've ever spoken to that has had someone die of AIDS. I also had a, a family member, two family members die of AIDS. And it was really, I think, really difficult for me to talk about it for a really long time. And it also really flavored the way I think about sex and sexuality, not to be overly dramatic, but it at times made falling in love seem like it might be a death sentence. And it really like, to a certain extent, made me distant, especially when I was a teenager. What was it like for you? Well, I guess when I learned about how he died, because initially it wasn't told to me, no one really told me how he died or why he died. But then, like, I remember my mother's parents, so, like, not Howard's parents, my other grandparents, saying he died of brain failure. And then that was, like, something that, like, the family used. I mean, I don't know if they invent. I don't think they invented that. I think that was, like, something that maybe was decided, like, how someone would explain it to me if I asked. Which even at that time seemed a little weird, like your brain just failing. <laughs> I didn't really understand that. It was sort of true, I guess, because his brain did fail, but as a result of the virus. So then when I learned about the virus and all of what that entailed, which was also how I, I learned the label of being homosexual, like applied to Howard. I mean, I knew what that was, 
and I knew that there had been Howard and Brad, but I, I didn't have a label for them. And so once I discovered the virus and discovered, you know, homosexuality and, and related to that virus, I think what I initially felt was kind of the, um, the stigma against it and the kind of ostracization in a way. And I, I started to kind of understand some of the reactions to by my father, Howard's brother, my grandparents, his parents, to the really kind of like powerful way his death affected everybody. It affected everybody differently, but it felt like something bigger than just someone getting sick and dying. And so I started to pick up on that. And what was your parents' reaction to it? Was it like something that they talked about or was it kind of just hush-hush? Well, it wasn't it wasn't hush-hush. I mean, we, we talked about it. There were a lot of kind of questions. I mean, I wasn't one of those kids who talks a lot and asks a bunch of questions. You know, I was the kind of kid who liked being behind a camera, kind of observing. So I didn't get much information, but I didn't ask for much either. But, you know, some memories like, you know, at the, at the burial, at the, at the, the burial at the grave, everyone had gone out from the funeral home. And you go out of like, the, you know, the limos to do the ceremony and lower the coffin. I wasn't allowed out for that. I was in the limousine with my brother, my little brother. So that scene is like seen through a car window which sort of kind of, in a way, sums up how it kind of was for me. And this kind of slightly, like very real and close, but very kind of mysterious and alien thing that had happened, you know, was this the loss of my uncle. And, and then it was like these clues to put the puzzle together in a way. And was there, how did you find out that he had died of HIV? Like, was there a specific moment where it kind of all clicked in? Yeah, absolutely. At the Milburn movie theater house, my dad took me to see Philadelphia when it came out. And like, it, it seemed like a really weird thing that my dad was making such a big deal about taking me to see a Tom Hanks movie. You know, it just seemed like really weird. And I didn't really know anything about it, but he really wanted me to see this movie and see it with him. And so I watched it and like, of course, at the end, you know, I, I understood Howard was gay. Howard died of AIDS. And then again, as I like, then it started to make sense. And then suddenly this Howard and Brad thing I knew about, cause we were still close with Brad became a label. Howard's sickness became AIDS. And it kind of became like, you know, political in a way, and which definitely in this kind of conservative town pushed me even farther, like away from that kind of, <laughs> you know, straight world where people would still make gay comments as insults all the time in school and especially in, the, in sports, in high school sports. And... Yeah, that was kind of very interesting to then like see and and process in that role that I was. Yeah, I had a really similar experience, um, not specifically with the movie Philadelphia, but there was this TV movie with Linda Hamilton called A Mother's Prayer. And I think the plot was that she was a single mom who had contracted AIDS and she had to tie up all these loose ends for her son before she died. Um and I remember the movie itself wasn't that intense, but I have this memory of watching it with my mom. And right at the end, there was this incredible surge of emotion that just sucked all the air out of the room when the main character died. And I had a similar moment where everything made sense and I could kind of start to place that grief somewhere. I'm not sure if this was a memory for you as well, but... I remember that Freddie Mercury had died of AIDS in 91 and the following year Wayne's World came out and there was that infamous scene where they're all singing along to Bohemian Rhapsody in the car and I remember thinking that it was supposed to be a funny scene but when I saw that film with my mom there was this intense mixture of laughter and tears that 
really uh, stayed with me. That scene in the car when they're driving along like Wayne's World to Bohemian Rhapsody is like the most emotionally complicated scene I think like I even know, you know, there's like such a range and there's like this and also because of the song, there's this kind of like really insane morose, just like sadness underneath the whole thing, right? Even though it's very alive, like it's it's super alive song, it's a super alive scene, you know, it's just full of life and happiness. Because HIV had such a heavy presence in the atmosphere of your adolescence, did it have a lasting effect on you? Yeah, for sure. It definitely, I mean, you know, everything took on like a whole new narrative. And it's also was really, you know, just talking about it now, it's interesting to see the role of of stories and, um, you know, music or films, books, whatever, have the, like their role in in helping people understand, you know, their own, their own kind of narratives, like some things you just can't be told, or your parent just can't say, or, you know, you want to be like, given the emotional experience of it without having to suffer the reality of it yet, you know, and that's certainly like the role of a lot of what we're talking about, you know, it's a great way to deepen your world, but also kind of, you know, alert you to what else is out there, not to scare you, but so that you can make informed decisions and, you know, hopefully go farther than, you know, your predecessors. It's pretty, um, it's interesting to me. Were you around any of Howard's friends when you were growing up, specifically like when you were a teenager? Did you have like, did his community stay close to you or was it just very distant? No, the, we were still close. I mean, as close as you are when like the main link is not there anymore. But I was, we were certainly close with Brad. We would see Brad, Sarah Lindemann, who didn't feature so much in the movie, just in a couple photos. She was a really important part of Howard's life, as was a boyfriend he had named Alan. So I knew Alan a bit, but then um, it was mostly Sarah and Brad, and also Joe Cranus, who was the head usher at the Metropolitan Opera House, where Howard worked as an usher whilst in Columbia studying political science. And this guy was amazing. And so I would see him with my grandparents, you know, up by Lincoln Center. And so I knew about I knew about him and we were connected with with them. And then college I met uh, Jim Jarmish and Sarah Driver. So I was, you know, kind of still like close to being a teenager. I was late teens, maybe, maybe 20. And what was the catalyst to you wanting to start making this project? Because I'm assuming, you know, this documentary that Howard had done about William Burroughs must have been like kind of in the periphery of your life. Well, it kind of unfolded like super organically. I don't know if it was just like one thing. I know the moment when it became really real, which was a little further into the process when John Giorno didn't want to let me go into the bunker. Because initially it was like, well, I'm always, I've always been fascinated in Howard's world and this whole space. And yeah, you know, Burroughs is such an amazing film. It should really be back out there. Why isn't it out there? You know, nobody knows about Howard. You know, we have to kind of fix this, get his work out there. And then like, you know, started to become interesting. Where is the print? So I started, you know, talking about his, him and his story with, you know, friends. It just invariably came up along the actual search for the, for the, the item, right? The actual like Burroughs negative of the film. And it was sort of like Howard just started to come back and Howard, it struck me like how present Howard still was in everybody's memories. It wasn't like a deep memory in the recess of the memory. It was something very kind of almost like the eyes had been looking at something and then averted it and suddenly remembered it had been looking there. And Howard just sort of like appeared very like strongly in the room when we were talking, you know, talking about this anecdote in relation to finding the film. And so I thought maybe, you know, I could, you know, explore this and maybe get some of this down. I did. I did some audio recordings and things, little bits here and there. But then when I couldn't get into the bunker, I kind of realized and I I was really devastated uh, 
like majorly devastated. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but tell us, uh, tell the audience like what the bunker is and why couldn't you get in? So the bunker was where William Burroughs lived in New York between 1978 and 1983. And it's on the Bowery just below CBGB's. And it was like this storied kind of epicenter of all the kind of counterculture, which all ran through Burroughs. It all ran through the bunker, which was a windowless former YMCA swimming pool and locker room that had been converted into an apartment. And one of the downsides of the bunker being on the Bowery was its proximity to the Lower East Side and all the heroin that was available. So, I mean, some would argue that was great, and Burroughs thought it was great too. But James Grauerholtz, who was Burroughs' caretaker, assistant, boyfriend, didn't like the idea of him dying of an overdose, never writing another book. So he got him out to Kansas. Um, but every time Burroughs would come back to New York, he still had a place because John Giorno, who lived upstairs from the bunker, kept it. He kind of just kept a watchful eye over it. They didn't change anything. You know, Burroughs had his bed and everything. So Burroughs moved out. The bunker didn't change. And in 83, Howard finished the film and he stored all of his negative roles from making these five years over which he filmed Burroughs in the back of the bunker. So... For years, it was just like the dining room table, Burroughs' hat on its hook, his gun in his dresser, you know, shirts on the rack, and the back room filled with Howard's cans. It was just always like that. Burroughs eventually died in 1997, and Giorno just continued to keep the bunker as it was, as sort of this shrine museum to Burroughs. So this kind of held the main... First of all, I thought the negative to the Burroughs print would, could still be there when I found out all this was still there. James Grauerhold showed me a printout of like the notes from everything that had been filmed that corresponded to all the film reels in the back of the bunker. And it was just really like extraordinary, like dinner with Warhol at the Chelsea Hotel or like a box that said Monsters in Porno. Burroughs discusses aliens, you know, Ginsburg shooting guns with Terry Southern, the Nova Convention, the Nova Convention, the Nova Convention. I didn't really even know what that was really other than from Howard's film briefly. But the Nova, so the Nova Convention was this huge event in 1978, this concert event weekend dedicated to Burroughs. And people had been influenced by Burroughs as sort of a symposium. And it was Burroughs, it was Allen Ginsberg, Patti Smith, Frank Zappa, Philip Glass, Laurie Anderson, you know, kind of like everyone, the kind of who's who, the B-52s played. You know, it's kind of like the who's who. Blondie of um, Keith Richards was supposed to be there. Susan Sontag of, of, uh, of Counterculture. And it was packed. Like the audience was packed with young people, uh, you know, from their teens. So this was kind of like this famous event, but no one had ever seen it. Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth, like, went there. You know, he remembered being there. But no one had ever seen it. And the reason no one had ever seen it is that all the footage of it was in the bunker. Howard had, like, filmed it like a concert movie with um, four different crews, like, backstage, you know, like, in the orchestra pit, from the balcony, on the street. It really kind of covered it. And it was all there. So it was just this whole key to this whole world and Howard's story. Because I remember also Jim telling me about, like, a lot of time. They were just rolling all the time. And if they ran out of film, Jim, who was Jarmish, who was doing the sound, would still record the mag tape. So they had this kind of huge account of this whole period. So it was really important for me to tell the story, to see the story, but also get really close to Howard. That was kind of the main underlying like emotional uh, objective. And I was really devastated when John Giorno at first, who said, yeah, like, just come on over and get it. Come take it. Wouldn't allow me to come in. <laughs> you well, know? I know. Well, he was, I mean, rest in peace. John died this October. And I love John and certainly came to love him. He kind of viewed himself as the guardian of of the bunker, of to a degree of William's legacy, or a part of William's legacy in New York, especially. And of the film cans. You know, he had 
apparently, I mean, other people had gone in there and seen, you know, like the name Francis Bacon and wanted to just take it, for example. And he made sure that it didn't budge. So he was sort of like this kind of overprotective force who maybe was taking it a little bit too far after years of being hardened by, you know, the burden of protecting it. It was sort of like that. And then it became kind of very complicated. And I, you know, I really was fighting for it and making a case to John, uh, as are other people coming to my defense. Like, you know, John, the reason you've been guarding it is for this. It's this moment. You know, no one has been able to come along and do anything with this, A, from a legal point of view, but B, you know, for the right reason. And, uh, and I was in the position to be there for the right reason and to do something with it. So it was it was really a big thing. And that kind of really started like, yeah, we're in the thick of it. We're doing this. We're making this movie about Howard either way. Like it's to see, like to feel the emotional impact of not getting in made me realize how important it was to tell my uncle's story. And I was going to do it with or without access to the bunker. And in fact, the night I got word that John was going to allow me to get into the bunker and come take the film cans. I had already been committed to doing an audio project with these safety audio tapes I had found in Kansas from James of Howard's story somehow. Even if it was going to be like super abstract, whatever, I was going to find a way to tell the story. So you were already on your way to making this documentary about Howard. You were going to do it regardless if you got in or not. Yeah, I didn't know how much I wanted to to do it. I was already on the way, but I didn't really realize just how important it was until that happened with the bunker. And also very important was the producer of the film, Paolo Vaccaro, at that time we were talking about it. I was like so devastated that I couldn't believe it. You know, John won't let me into the bunker. I was all there ready to go. And she was like, well, you know, this this is your story. <laughs> this is part of the story. And it really kind of helped shift my perception into, you know, something much more, much less of like a victim and much more like, yeah, sleeves rolled up. We're going to find a way to do it anyway. You know, that kind of attitude. There's this really moving scene in, in your film where you first go into the bunker and you seem to be like really overwhelmed with emotion can you like walk me through that day like what was it like did it feel frozen in time was it that your first the, the moment that's in the film was that the first time you had gone down there that was all completely real i was so nervous because i hadn't been in there first of all but really john had asked said i could come before right like we had like appointments for me to show up and just and then decided not to let me in. So now it seemed like things were going to be OK, but I still wasn't really sure. And I had hired, you know, like my DP, you know, my sound guy, you know, a photographer, you know, like the little crew I put together for it. No, I was like committed, <laughs> but I still didn't really know is this going to work? I had an amazing crew. They knew the whole story, like about what was going on. And so I didn't even know like my DP was was rolling actually once we got in. I remember like we shot a little bit before on the way getting there because I knew it would be part of the story. But once I got to the door, just kind of like nerves of like, is this actually going to work kind of took over. And I kind of like completely forgot about like all of that, trying to tell the story. And I kind of just slipped into being like, like the character you see there in the story. And that was like my first time walking in there. And it was just kind of crazy for me because, you know, I had seen this space like since my childhood in this movie, Burroughs the movie, you know, many times. And I had been focusing on this space now for like, a few years because, you know, Howard's archive is in the bunker. The bunker hasn't remained. And actually, funny thing is I always, because the bunker always sounded to me like it was in the basement. 
So I assumed it was in the basement. So it was very surprising for me to have to walk up the steps to get to the bunker. You know, like it was on the second floor and I just didn't expect that. So it was like that threw me off. And then I walked in, but everything was like exactly the same. Like 30 years of dust. It's just 30 years of dust, like on a box or like a rack has an expiration date from like 79. You know, it's like it was super weird. And it's it the Bowery is so loud. New York is so loud. The bunker, because of the having been a swimming pool, the walls are really thick concrete. It's like really quiet. It was just really overwhelming. And then on top of it, there was like, you know, the Keith Herring artwork on the wall, which was a kind of reminder of I don't know, or a reminder of it all. Like this place has like a bigger significance beyond just the film and beyond just the memory somehow this space like really encapsulates you know the whole trajectory of of uh this story which goes you know beyond burroughs and beyond howard um and into kind of a whole generation that was kind of wiped out i think that's like one of the most interesting things about the documentary is that it starts as one thing but by the end of it it's about so many different things ranging from you know, the effects of the AIDS virus to gentrification, boroughs, you know, the New York heyday, and then this like really beautiful elegy to your Uncle Howard. But I think on a more ambient level, what the film is about, and what that moment is about, is just, just total devastation of what was lost and what could have been by all of these like brilliant artists at that time. Once you like make your way down there, does it give you like a roadmap to how you're going to complete this movie? Like, does it everything kind of congeal at that moment? <laughs> Far from it, actually. Like at some point, like I had, I called my friend to pick up his truck, and at some point it dawned on me, like this is a lot of stuff, <laughs> right? And it's not like these are hard drives that I can just plug into my computer and like get to work. These are actual reels, like 192 reels of 16 millimeter film and separate magnetic sound rolls in boxes and cans. And it's so massive. And we're lugging it down in the boxes. I had to call my friend who's got like a truck. And I was like, I guess, where do I go with this now? What do I do with all this? You know, I can't just take it home. You know, it's like massive amounts of stuff. And I ended up having to like go directly to a Manhattan mini storage and um, rent a room, <laughs> you know, like in a air conditioned level where it was kind of like seemed like reasonably safe. And then like get on the phone and be like, okay, I need, I don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be a lot of money and resources to even be able to see what's on this stuff. And I remember like going through, like calling up people at MoMA, for example, like, look, I got this amazing archive. I need to digitize it and sync it. <laughs> and you're like, what well, sounds, I was describing like some of my uncles and I just, you know, it's got this in it and that in it. I'm like, well, that's great. We'd love to see it. And I was like, you mean like, you know, the, the cans? And they're like, no, look, we'll see what's on it. I was like, well, I need the money to digitize it <laughs> and sync it to be able to see what's on it. And it was suddenly like uh, really even more complicated, you know, and I needed to like, we needed to go out and fundraise and, um, and find a way to do it. And then even once we did get it and uh, Criterion Collection uh, helped in, in bringing the burrows out, the, the film back, putting the film back out, but helping with, you know, some of the, the costs of digitization. Even after things were digitized, you know, there were no slates or anything. It took so much time to actually sync it all up. It was like a really massive, massive undertaking, which even then extended beyond the movie. We got things in, in order enough to be able to tell the story we wanted to tell. But the completion of that archive and the completion of syncing everything and organizing everything went on well beyond the creation of Uncle Howard. Are there any plans to do something else with it? Yeah, you know, we, we want to. We, um, A, there's putting Howard's whole archive 
you know, which starts in 78 and ends in 89 in the right institution for that, because it's very important to kind of keep that, that legacy intact after the, the great lengths put to put it back together, spanning the Burroughs world. And Howard did a second film on Robert Wilson and then his movie with Madonna and Bloodhounds of Broadway and, and that whole he videotaped everything, right? And all like the process and the rehearsals and what he went through to do all that. I think it's a very important like archive as a whole. So we want to place that. And then particularly with the footage, like the Nova Convention and that world, we have been looking at a way to like, how can that archive add to the kind of ongoing story of New York? And we're looking at uh, exploring the year of 1978 in particular, which is uh, the Nova Convention happens that year. It's the year that Koch is going to take over New York and New York goes from kind of it's bankrupt and destroyed. And you kind of get these two groups that emerge, like one camp around Burroughs and this huge place for counterculture and another for hungry developers, you know, 70 years, the same year Donald Trump goes into New York and uh, starts to get the deal to convert uh, the Commodore Hotel, which becomes the Grand Hyatt. There's a new mayor in 78, a beam loses to Mayor Koch, who starts basically what are the laws of gentrification, which starts enabling huge tax breaks for developers to lift the city up from the immense debt that it's in. So there's these kind of like really extreme forces at play in 1978 between the developers and between the counterculture. And so that's an area where I think that Howard's archive can really like uniquely add to the New York narrative. And then it becomes a story about this kind of battle for New York, which is uh, something we're exploring as, you know, a possible series, a documentary series. Oh my God, that would be amazing. That sounds so awesome. (laughs) Yeah, there's really a lot that's going on. And, you know, a lot of the questions that we have about New York, like how did it get so insane real estate wise and where did it all go is really kind of laid out bare in those early days. Because those are like the, a lot of the laws that happened over the um, the Koch year that made New York change over the Koch years, but also Giuliani and Bloomberg. And even now we're set into motion in 78. It's a whole new way of looking at things. And because it's New York, it's very kind of clear and upfront and in your face and and remarkably straightforward at that time. So it's useful to kind of learn about what's going on now by looking at that. And did Howard keep video diaries as well? Yeah, he did. He started, well, interestingly enough, he started keeping his first video diary working out backwards when he knew that he was sick with HIV. And that was shortly before his grandfather died in March 87, which is when Howard starts to, he never like talks about it really. He once alludes to a bruise on his toe and that's in the film. He never like uses it as like this way to kind of talk directly about the disease, but he explores themes around it. He explores death, what it's like to lose someone who has lived a full life, what it's like to lose someone who's not lived a full life, what it's like to lose a friend, a family member. It was interesting insight into where his mind was going. And then video diary stopped out of necessity because he started making a huge, for him, budget, independent film backed by a studio with this insane cast and he basically got into that and fought in that battle up until he really died. So there was never any other time for reflecting. And were the video diaries also in the bunker? Or was this something you had access to from home? No, the video diaries were something else. And actually a lot of Howard's tapes, videotapes were in a wardrobe at my grandmother's. Howard's mother's, but also Brad had some stuff and he never really knew what he had. Um, I remember like one time I was still in college, we were hanging out and he was just like, cause we would hang out sometimes, you know, he was like this cool writer, uncle type, you know, I would go have like a beer with and maybe order a pizza, you know, talk a little bit about 
books, movies, and Howard. And he would show me some stuff. And one time there was a videotape that was like his diary. But it was on a video eight, which wasn't like a something you could easily play. So back in college, I had, was like working in the film department. And I knew we had like those decks to transfer different formats in the back. So I I transferred it to like a VHS and saw Howard's video diary when I was in college. Walk me through that moment. What was that like? Well, kind of interesting because it was really around the time that I had started then making films. I don't remember exactly what year it was. It was junior year or senior year. But yeah, I mean, I, it was around like when I was taking it seriously enough. And then my senior year, I did a pretty ambitious documentary on the Federation of Black Cowboys in Brooklyn for my, like, this documentary class. And I was, you know, kind of falling in love with um, documentary then. And so Howard's video diary was at one hand chilling and eerie and on another very comforting and, you know, almost like kind of picking up an important kind of talisman or object or emotional thing to take on with me on my journey and kind of like, you know, reinforce this desire. And did you have to surrender your emotions while making this film? It seems like it must have been really painful at times. Even watching it brought up all these feelings. I realized that maybe I hadn't been dealing with. Yeah, I mean, emotionally, it was complicated. I wouldn't say I was like surrendering them. It was more like, I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a lot of fun. I mean, there were like tragic bits and like looking at home, old home movies are particularly stirring always. But it was actually just great to have Howard around. I actually was really enjoying it and enjoying the whole process of it and Howard's world around and making a movie. The emotional challenge came in carving out my own role as a character in the story, because this is very hard to have the perspective to see how like a home movie would play out for an audience because home movies are so particular or, you know, something I feel with Howard, you know, questioning, is that coming through? And it was easier to do that when it was through other people. But when it came time to threading through my own narrative as a character in the story, which I was really reluctant to do, but understood at some point it was needed and would add a lot to the story, then it was like very just kind of tricky. And that was challenging. And that was a lot in the editing. And so the editing was very difficult to kind of strike that right balance. And at the same time, you know, editing is not like always so exciting. <laughs> Editing is very tedious and very labor intensive. So, you know, the emotion inevitably will start to wane. So things can become like go in the opposite direction. They can go from being like too uh, specifically emotional to you to not emotional enough to you because you've seen it so many times and you're kind of, you know, moving into somewhere else. So it was, it was a challenge. For sure. But then it felt really great to then somehow reach a moment when all the emotion of it felt correct to me. And I wasn't saying too much. I wasn't saying too little. I was I felt like giving the audience an accurate representation of the emotion that I feel for my uncle. <laughs> You know, which is not just sadness. There, sadness exists certainly in the story, but there's a lot of fun and a lot of joy. And both, you know, myself and all the people who made this movie, like we all had a really good time doing it. And this was like an exciting story to tell. These were fun. These are fun people to be around. Making a movie is just a great, exciting thing to do. And if Howard were still here, he would be wanting to do this, you know, as well. So that was all really important to get across and the finest finished product as well. I mean, that makes sense. I think what's interesting to me is that about the way you frame your character in it is that it's a show don't tell kind of character and that it's the devotion that 
kind of carries the momentum and carries it forward and gives the the basis of the emotional impact of the entire story is just the fact that you're doing it, that you're going through this, that you're putting it together. I think that to me is kind of the most moving aspect of the way you've inserted yourself into the film. Yeah, I got really great advice from Tom DiCillo before, like in the early stages when I was still just kind of feeling out the idea of doing it, really going the full way. And Tom said, my challenge as a filmmaker was going to be to not tell the audience to love Howard, but to make them fall in love with Howard themselves. And that made a very big impact on me and something I took really seriously We've all seen these movies where people are just kind of telling you that someone was great or amazing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you're not really feeling it as an audience. And I was really driven, like, both by fear of, like, avoiding that and also, like, motivation to achieve what Tom was was talking about. You know, show, don't tell. You know, that, yeah, of course, that's, like, the basis for for why you're making a movie. So that was like a great challenge always. That always was in the back of my mind, always. How does it feel to retell this story so many times? Like, has anything changed from the beginning? How you feel about it? Like, was there a catharsis in the end? Um, well, the movie, I was just, you know, when I think for any, I mean, I, my experience with it, with all films is like, you kind of just work on it until a point where it just, has a kind of emotional correctness that I was just referring to and you're just done with it and kind of ready to move on. So that, that was achieved with the movie, right? And then it, it was, it's always kind of interesting and uh, to talk about Howard and to talk about his story and to talk about, you know, the process of the movie and, you know, people, I mean, like yourself, it's been really cool to have like fans of the film or audience members reach out who, you know, make a genuine emotional connection to the story and kind of it becomes part of their story and their narrative somehow. So listening to how it affects people is really, really cool. And um, always kind of, you know, I, I don't see it like talking about the same story again or, you know, like Howard's story again. It's more like his story, like his narrative continues, right? You know, because there's this movie and audiences aren't robots. Audience bring their own ideas to something and feel their own emotions. And that, you know, is, you know, the best part of, of all of it. I totally agree. I think from watching the film, it comes across that Howard is one of those people who really fought to make life play out to its fullest. I think in some ways that makes his loss that much more tragic, but it also makes the message of the film all that much more beautiful. Yeah, the message in his letter was always going to be a very, like, part of the um, the film. And, you know, live your life to the fullest, you know. You get one life, you know, do with it what you want. You know, that was very much Howard's spirit and, you know, the spirit of his mentor, let's say William Burroughs, you know, would call time as a resource and time is running out, you know, like you're not here in this form forever. You know, really, you use your time, get out of it what you want to get out with it, get out of it, you know, all those themes of exploration that Burroughs talked about and encouraged people to. And Howard took that torch also, as so many others did. It's uh, very important, I think. Something I think is very important to, you know, words to live by. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And did you watch the Burroughs documentary when you were a kid? Or did you watch that later on in life? No, yeah, I watched it a lot as a kid. I had, uh, you know, like the usual VHS tapes of Star Wars, Back to the Future, E.T., Burroughs the movie. <laughs> I mean, they were like the things I kind of had on repeat. I always found Burroughs the movie really kind of like funny and like warm. I don't know how to explain it. It was strange. It totally makes sense to me because, you know, I'd seen the movie a few years ago because I just watched everything about Burroughs and 
soak up as much of the stuff around him and the documentaries and there's a great audio book and this american life did a great podcast about him but it's funny because um when i was preparing to interview you i saw the documentary again and i saw it just so differently this time there's this really like reckless energy and i mean that in a positive way that you can tell that whoever's behind the camera and Burroughs had something, they were like in on the joke together or they were in on something together and they were just kind of like crashing through the city and having this really great time, which is something you don't really associate with Burroughs because he's, you know, his character is somebody, you know, that's very austere and weird and it's just this kind of strange alien with like a drawl who's obsessed with guns and drugs, but there's a real like wackiness to it that felt really warm yeah absolutely i mean i love that he took this very kind of formal structure because burroughs himself is like a very formal structure you know he's like old he's got this kind of anglo accent weird anglo accent from like midwest aristocracy or something whatever that is wears a three-piece suit you know in a fedora but unpacked in this like very rigid structure is this total like free person and that I think structurally the film works for that and then like the interactions with him are great and I love also like Howard decided to get William to act out the role of Dr. Benway (laughs) you know Burroughs became like that wasn't a normal thing to go and do Burroughs was a, a writer in the page at that time he started reading and performing at punk rock clubs, which is when the kind of emergence as Burroughs as a performer came in. And I think it's really extraordinary that there aren't many authors where when you're reading their works, you hear their voice in in your, like, I can't read Burroughs without hearing him talk those words. You know, just, it's part of the humor and the whole thing. And Howard, being Howard, took that one step further and said, okay, act out this role, like your most famous role as a Dr. Benway, the ship's drunken surgeon trying to perform an emergency appendectomy under morphine. I always think it was great. So you have like these asides, which are just part of this, part of this man in the three-piece suit, you know? And, you know, Howard was so young when he made this. How did he get Burroughs to trust him to tell his story? Because I imagine like everybody must have wanted to tell told a story. Everybody must, every artist at that time would die to be in this position. What did Burroughs see in him as a burgeoning young filmmaker? Well, one thing I think to keep in mind that's important is like, it wasn't really a normal thing to go and make a movie about somebody at that time in the way that Howard wanted to do it. It wasn't like you like now when you, you could have like a Netflix show about an artist, for example, or something like that, you know? It was a pretty unique idea to have. So I think at first, you know, the uniqueness of that was part of it. Also part of that is, you know, James Grauerholtz, who was really close friends with Howard and really close friends with Burroughs, knew both of them very well. And, you know, James has always been this bit of a, you know, matchmaker or, you know, assembler of things slightly from afar and he also you know saw i think you know foresaw this relationship working out well so he was very much part of connecting howard to uh to do this project on on william you know for his senior thesis and howard's approach was really cool i guess and, you know, the early footage I've, I've seen, Burroughs is not really comfortable on camera. He's really stiff. And it definitely took time for them to relate to one another. I mean, you got to imagine, like, Burroughs is this guy in his 60s and living this pretty weird life, right, downtown. And then he's, like, three kids from NYU. Howard, Jim Jarmusch, and Tom DiCillo, they're all like, you know, three real characters <laughs> themselves, like come around with this big bulky film equipment and lights. It's kind of like this, what's going on here exactly? You know, worlds are colliding and he's cautious, Burroughs. You know, they didn't just start right in. And, and, and Howard and his crew are respectful. They don't just jump in right away and like, tell me about your wife. You know, it's not, not at all 
there was a lot of feeling out and spending time with each other and kind of observing. And you see it unfold in watching, you know, the 30 hours of, of rushes of, uh, you know, how, I don't know, they just start to develop a common language, mostly through sense of humor and seeing the humor and, and, and all these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he also, in making this film, captured this electricity that was happening in New York City at that time, which for me, because I was so young when I was in New York, you know, I could never, I never touch it. All I had was this strong sense of nostalgia that I couldn't reference, which a lot of times is, I think, the most intense kind of nostalgia that you can have. So I'm just so happy that um, you were able to save that film, get it back out there and to make your film and tell Howard's story and put something really beautiful out into the into a world that seems drained of it sometimes. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that for sure. 